You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. Easy going, easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Well, didn't you make a fool of me between the peas? Brisket and your sister Off the rails This goddamn conductor Drove the train And took them Welcome to our Solid Ally series Throughout this series We will discuss ways We can all be better citizens For one another In a shared humanity, we can accept and acknowledge systematic racism has been riddled throughout our American history, and we can learn and listen from others about this problematic history. But on a hopeful note, you and I can also take all that we learn, and then we can roll up our sleeves and begin to do the work to build a more solid and empathetic America, leaving racism in our rearview mirror. Now here is our episode. We hope you enjoy it. Nelson Mandela declared, Education is the most powerful weapon which can be used to change the world. In my interview, you will hear from a man who inspired me as a student and as an athlete. He, along with my brilliant single black mother, never stopped urging me to understand the power and the importance of education, just as Mandela emphasizes in his quote. Once again, education is the most powerful weapon which can be used to change the world. I am Crystal Miles Threat. I'm a black woman and I've sought to take my power, which I've earned as an elite student athlete and a loving and caring woman. For Solid Ally series, I chose to bring you the Learn Ally Step as I fully embrace the value of education and I believe it will be pivotal in continuing moving forward our human rights movement, as well as our quest to rebuild a judicial system that is indeed a just system for all. In this interview, Coach Green will give us a black history lecture from which we will hear about the origins of race and how it came to America in the form of slavery and white supremacy. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Before we begin this episode, let's hear from our partner and sponsor, the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bar Company. If your skin, much like our nation, is in need of repair and uplifting, check out Solid Lotion Bar Company. Handcrafted in small batches, we make solid lotion bars that melt into moisturizing lotion. With many scents to choose from, there is a solid lotion bar for everyone. Please visit www.solidlotionbar.com and purchase your Justice Bar today, where proceeds will be directed to local racial and social justice charities as we stand together for lotion and justice for all. Now, here's our episode. We hope you enjoy it. When I listen to Coach Green speak, I cannot help but to feel a bit cheated. You see, in high school, 
I didn't have a teacher passionately educating me, first of all, maybe ever, but secondly, so astutely about African-American history. As a result, for myself, like for most of us, this vital history has been ignored at best or denied and hidden at worst. In this episode, we will be treated to a fascinating and informative player-coach conversation. Coach Green has spent his lifetime gaining a complete understanding of how important the African-American history could be to finding the contentment for which our nation is in desperate need. In this episode, maybe more importantly, you will also hear that as a high school history educator and college guest lecturer, Coach Green has spent a lifetime inspiring young minds to seek all they can to be their best and to confidently navigate their lives with the gentle guidance In this conversation, Coach Green reminds his student-athlete, Crystal Miles Street, what a republic demands of its citizens. And he does so just as he guided her when she was a student-athlete, heeding his advice on how to become a two-sport Division I scholarship athlete. Though their player-coach relationship ended 15 years ago, Crystal seeking Coach Green's tutelage has never ended. Here is Coach Green giving panelists Crystal Miles Street yet another needed African-American history lesson. So get out your notepad and your writing implement and get ready to learn. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Green or Coach Green. Can you give us some history regarding the history of race, racism, as it pertained to the colonial times? Yes, Crystal. If you look at the status of race, The status of race prior to the Moorish invasion of Spain in 711 AD did not exist. The status of race was created because a North African group called the Garamantes, who converted to Islam, would cross northern Africa then cross the Straits of Gibraltar and take over Spain and Portugal and would rule it for eight centuries. Race was created in the form of a system called purity of blood laws in order to get Spaniards and Portuguese not to cooperate with those African invaders who had ruled over Spain and Portugal since 711 AD, establishing the most significant civilization of its time. They were so important to the culture of Spain and Portugal that they were embraced by the local and even mixed with the local populations over eight centuries. And in order to create a fissure between lighter Spanish and Portuguese and darker Spanish and Portuguese, a series of laws called the purity of blood laws would be created. And those purity of blood laws would give increased status to those of lighter skin and decreased status to those of darker skin. And essentially, ethnically, the people were the same, right? Because the the Moors and the Spanish and Portuguese had mixed and mingled over eight centuries. So those purity of blood laws was a human-created status by the Catholic Church. So the Moors would lose cooperation from the local people. How did the history of racism or race 
come to America. So since the these Muslim North Africans were universally literate, okay, they were brilliant intellects. So what they did is they completely transformed the Iberian Peninsula and made it into the leading civilization of the world, not only academically, but culturally, financially. So the tools that would eventually be used by the Spanish and Portuguese to launch the Age of Exploration were created or brought into Spain and, Spain and Portugal by these North African Moors, all right? Gradually, what Spanish Catholics would do is they would start to support the ideas they were developed by the Catholic Church called these purity of blood laws, and they rejected cooperation with the Moors. And by 1492, the uh, institution called the Inquisition would gradually root out what was considered heresy, all right, or false worship by Jews and later the Moors, giving Catholics control of Spain and Portugal by 1492. So as the age of discovery took place, these purity of blood laws would follow the Portuguese in the Eastern Hemisphere to whatever lands they took over, and those same purity of blood laws would follow Spaniards to the Western Hemisphere wherever they took over. They would be renamed for pictures drawn to portray these new, quote, races or these new darker people that were created through an intermixing of people from the Iberian Peninsula and the New World. And those new pictures would be called Las Pinturas de Costas, or the pictures of the cast. So the original races appeared in picture form. And in most of these pictures, you would see three people. You would see an adult male of one ethnicity, an adult female of another ethnicity, and a child of mixed ethnicity. And each child in each one of those paintings represented a new caste or a new race, each race having its own separate name and status. The lighter skin you were, the increase the status was. The darker skin you were, the lower the status was. They were called Las Venturas de Costas. So when, during the exploration, of course, um, you have the, the Middle Passage where Africans were taken uh, from Africa and brought to the United States for labor purposes. Can you go into that history? Yes. So if you look at the early Spanish explorations, the early Spanish explorations were carried out by lighter-skinned ethnic Spaniards who were Catholics, but also descendants of the Moors who were called conversos, who had converted from Islam to Catholicism under threat. They were called Moriscos. So when you look at these early explorations, they weren't just light-skinned Spaniards. They were also darker-skinned Spaniards who were directly related to these Moors. When the new lands would be settled, the initial workers to clear and create townships and cities that were livable by Europeans used the native laborers who were there. The problem with the use of native laborers 
is they had no immunities to European diseases. So they died in large numbers. Many ran away, but it was not a productive labor force, all right? As a result of that lack of productivity, a Catholic bishop by the name of Bishop Bartolome de las Casas suggested using African laborers for that new work. Since Europe and Africa had been in contact for centuries, you would not have the same level of epidemic killing large numbers of potential workers. So Africans would be suggested by Bishop Bartolome de las Casas they would gradually be brought in as workers in the Spanish colonies and Portuguese colonies in the Western Hemisphere. Thus, chattel slavery was born in the 16th century. And can you now discuss post-slavery, racism, and the emergence of policing? Okay. Now, with the introduction of these new laborers, one of the important things that a lot of people don't realize is that these new laborers were highly skilled workers. They weren't taken from all over uh, the continent of Africa that has over 1,400 ethnicities. They were specific ethnicities from the West Coast of Africa who held expertise necessary for the, uh, the Western colonies to succeed, from engineering to mining. So you had different ethnicities brought. Those ethnicities, they would lose their ethnic identity. They would be given the status of black, be responsible for the productivity that would eventually lead to economic success for the Western world starting with Spain and Portugal first, then going to the other colonizing nations. And those African laborers who were experts in their field that would be responsible for the Industrial Revolution and the guaranteed success of the Western world economically and the tilting of the Western world towards Western Europe and the development of capitalism. It was all based on the backs African laborers who were experts in their field. Oh, so all Africans aren't just, you know, strong and athletic. They have brains. If you look at the oldest university in the world, it's called the University of Kareem. It's in Morocco. It was established in 859 AD by two African women. It is still in existence today, the University of Kareem. No, these were intellectual giants who came west, right? There were fully established schools centuries, right, in Africa before there were fully established schools in Europe. By 476 AD, the schools of Europe, because of uh, Rome's fall, all were destroyed with the exception of a few in the Catholic uh, churches. Knowledge, scholarship, and wisdom thrived in Africa at the time and continued through the slave period. You had some of the major universities of the, of the world in Africa first, then taken to Western Europe, meaning Spain and Portugal, 
by these North African Garamantes. Uh, Garamantes eventually called the Moors. So the people who came west and were used as, as uh, slaves were very, very, very valuable. All right? Without them, the Western world would not have succeeded. They were so important to the success of the Western world that they were the most valuable commodities that were, quote, produced by the West. So there was an interest in maintaining that institution at all costs, even if it meant a waging a major war, which was the Civil War. That's how valuable that institution was. So valuable, in fact, that one of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the architects of the original Constitution that was uh, essentially created to protect mankind's natural rights of life, liberty, and property. Thomas Jefferson, one of the largest slave owners in the colonies, would say, with the institution of slavery, we have a wolf by the ears and we can't let it go. He was concerned that if you were to be true to the constitutional ideals and grant freedom to the largest and most important workforce in American history, the economy would not only collapse, but you had would have possible uh, civil disruption because of the anger that these former slaves would have against their slave masters and against the early colonies and later states of the United States. There would be a gradual push to end slavery, and that gradual push would come first from England, who had eliminated slavery in 1808, and then gradually from an abolition movement consisting of free black and some educated white uh, people in the colonies. All right. And that gradual uh, move towards emancipation, which would start with the Revolutionary War, would continue to build up steam all the way up to the Civil War in 1861. So the Spaniards, or I'm sorry, the bishop, uh, the Catholic bishop, decided to use Africans as the labor for the, the new yes. world. Yes. Um, was that due in part due to racism as well it, as the intellect and skill of the Africans um, along the coast in those Western countries? I would say most definitely. Because remember, that history of race and racism would actually start in Spain. All right, so that creation of status would take place in Spain first. There was an understanding at that point that people of African descent were in no way, shape, or form inferior since they had ruled over Spain and Portugal, which was the leading nation in the world for eight centuries. We as Americans have only been here for 
not even two and a half centuries, right? But Africans had ruled over Spain and Portugal and made it into the leading civilization of the world at that time for eight centuries. So there was an understanding that there was nothing at all inferior about African people. That status had to be created, right? And gradually instituted. And that belief system or that status system that would portray African people as inferiors had to gradually be uh, inculcated in the European population, right? Because it was totally a totally false status. Because these people were highly educated and highly valued, some so valued that to buy an African engineer in the early 19th century would cost you only $100,000 for one African engineer who were experts in what they did. So by that time, by the time that the nation was looking at potentially getting rid of slavery, right, a half century after the British had already done it, African people were such a valuable commodity, especially in the South, right, mm-hmm. that it would be very difficult to get rid of them because they were a commodity. Even after the Civil War, their value still was that high. So much so, in fact, laws were created to try to continue their bondage, right, through sharecropping, through black codes, and through forced labor. If you were an African person of African descent who did not have a job after the Civil War, you were forced into labor. And that forced labor would come in the form of an early criminal justice system or an early uh, prison gang system that would actually force people of African descent without jobs to be laborers. Many times okay. on the same plantations they were freed from. And that's how we get into the Black Codes? Exactly. Black Codes were designed to control every aspect of behavior for people who were formally enslaved. Now, were the Black Codes enforced by what I would probably consider the emergence of the the policing in America? The Black Codes were enforced largely by a population that was formally identified by wealthy white planters as crackers. The term cracker was not a racial epithet that was used against poor whites by blacks. It was an epithet created by wealthy white planters to designate poor whites who had very little value to the wealthy whites whose part of the, the uh, main, major part of their diet consisted of literally soda crackers. So that's where they got the nickname. 
right? But after the Civil War, those former white crackers would be given a status that would be superior to those formerly enslaved people. So what it did is it created an automatic caste system that had nothing to do with labor or value. It was tied to skin color. So even if you were formerly a low-status white person, you would always have superior status to even a highly skilled black person because of skin color. So the enforcement mechanism for those black codes would be those formerly low-status whites. The black codes occurred, and then we have the Jim Crow laws. Is that the Jim Crow laws were an extension of the black codes? Yes, they were. Yes, they were. In the the uh, the idea of Jim Crow uh, actually developed from blackface minstrelsy. The nickname of the Jim Crow laws comes from a white professional minstrel by the name of Daddy Rice, who would have a song and dance that he did mimicking uh, Africans who were enslaved called a Jim Crow song. He would say, wheel about, turn about, jump real slow. Wheel about, turn about, jump Jim Crow. Wheel about, turn about, dance real slow. Because every time you turn about, you jump Jim Crow. He was the most popular, or one of the most popular entertainers worldwide, and he made his living negatively depicting the life of people who were enslaved. So the black codes would be replaced by a series of laws that would continue to completely control black life and their intermingling with white people in the United States, even up until the point that I was about eight years old. So you'd have this legal separation of race uh, that was developed based on these black codes after the Civil War that remained in effect till the early 60s. Can you explain what a minstrel show is? Yes. It's a minstrel show was the most popular form of entertainment in the world from the late 19th century all the way up through the early 20th century. And what it did is it negatively depicted black life in the United States uh, of America. Essentially, what it would do is it would mock black people. And the early minstrels were not always white. Economically, it was so successful, sometimes you would have minstrels who were black pretending to be white minstrels imitating black minstrels. All right? But what it did is it negatively depicted the uh, life and the culture of the African-American people. And it depicted them in a very demeaning fashion, even though you had this whole history 
in Africa of a very advanced culture, and you had this whole history of highly skilled black laborers in the United States, but it became the most popular form of entertainment in, in Europe and in the United States in the mid so latter part of the 19th century through the early part of the 20th century. Well, actually almost up to the 1950s. Okay. So if you had never met a black person, your impression of black people and black life, when you see that show, that's what you would, that would be your impersonation of what a black person does, it looks like, and that's a black life. Exactly. Up until the development of a film called The Birth of a Nation by uh, uh, D.W. Griffin. And once The Birth of a Nation was actually made, that would be the primary uh, propaganda apparatus for depicting black life. Because now it was in the media, and now it could be more widely distributed than uh, um, these mystical shows that you actually had to attend in person. And is that how black people were kind of dehumanized through the minstrel shows and through Birth of a Nation? They would be dehumanized in the media based on that. But the system of slavery first, and secondly, the forced servitude uh, after the Civil War was a major dehumanizing factor. Okay. Um. I think uh, I've spoken to you before about the policing in America and how it got started. Um, I believe you expressed to me that the Irish were the first police force. And at one point, the blacks and the Irish were actually friendly towards one another. Um, and I guess the wealthier uh, plantation owners created the vision between the Blacks and the Irish by empowering the Irish uh, to police the Blacks. Is that correct? Exactly did during the colonial period, because before the United States was formed in the 17th century, you did not have slavery in the early colonies. Okay, the, only, uh, um, the only system of servitude that the English were familiar with at that point, the English colonies were familiar with at that point was indentured servitude. So the first African people who came to the English colonies were actually treated as indentured servants in a similar status to the Irish, who were of a very low classification at the same period of time. Right? So the early uh, Blacks indentured servants who would come as early as 1619 would actually live, mix, and mingle with those Irish indentured servants. Many times they would marry, they would have familiar relationships, they would actually rebel against their masters together. So what the colonial masters had to do was create a division, a divide and rule, and start to give those Irish status over those black indentured servants. Those Irish would eventually become those crackers that I talked about earlier. 
and they okay. would be given the responsibility for policing the black indentured servants who would run from their masters. In fact, the first uh, official person designated as a slave was uh, a black indentured servant by the name of John Punch, who actually escaped with Irish indentured servants. They were given an additional seven years. He was given what's called Durante Vita, or a lifetime sentence. So he would be uh, considered to be the first chattel slave, and he's Barack Obama's first African-American descendant was the first person to receive that lifetime uh, servitude status, John Punch. Mm. Okay, um, thank you for that. Uh, let's get back to the, the Jim Crow. So with the Jim, Jim Crow laws, there's a civil rights uh, movement in the Jim Crow laws. The civil rights movement would eventually help lead to the end of the Jim Crow laws, right? The civil rights movement that had its roots actually in West Oakland and was also carried out in the South eventually would uh, uh, end up in passing laws that would gradually end this race-based system of preference for white Americans over black Americans and other people of color. Now, the Jim Crow laws pretty much more of the first people experienced institutional racism other than slavery? No. Institutional racism was first created by the sentencing well, in the English colonies, by the sentencing of John Punch, institutional racism was first created in the colonial system, remember, with the purity of blood laws. That's where race first becomes instituted as a status, right? Lighter-skinned people being given preference over darker-skinned people institutionally based on what they look like. So that's how old institutional racism is. It's pre-colonial. Okay. So then after the the Jim Crow laws, we have the civil rights movement. Um, did racism well, during, in America end after the civil I'll rights movement? During, during the Jim Crow laws, you would have the creation of a civil rights movement. So during during the Jim Crow laws? Yes. But yes. at the end of the civil rights movement, did racism in America end? Absolutely not. We currently have a president uh, who continued racist behavior in the first presidential, quote, debate. We currently have a president who refused to denounce racism in that debate and refused to denounce racism continually throughout his tenure in office. 
So did then in the during the Jim Crow law era, is that when white supremacy was more emboldened? I would say. I would disagree because white supremacy has been emboldened ever since the start of the purity of blood laws. That's when it becomes systematic, right? So from that point forward, white supremacy gradually becomes instituted wherever European colonialism takes place. That idea of status based on skin color becomes instituted. So it was was never really gradually emboldened. It's been constant. All right. And it's affected all aspects of the lives of black people, people of color, and the enhanced status of white people. It's part of an institution. It's not individual people. It's an institution that was created and gradually disseminated worldwide during the colonial period. But at some point, at least in the civil rights movement era, there was a a reckoning with the United States. And I thought some of that racism and hate um, kind of, right, it wasn't in your face at that time. I don't agree. You don't agree? I don't agree. If you look at COVID, right, if you look at COVID and you look at the statistics, how many black people and people of color had have died percentage-wise? Many more than died during the civil rights movement, I would argue, in an eighth-month period. So how is that any less heinous than the lynchings that occurred during the Jim Crow era. Because you're talking about tens of thousands of people more who have died than died during lynchings. So I'm arguing that no, it hasn't gotten better. It's gotten better for some people because what the civil rights movement was successful in doing is creating legislation that would gradually ease the oppression faced by black people, faced by people of color, and more so faced by white women before the rollback started. So the civil rights movement has gradually been rolled back. So there hasn't been that change that people were expecting based on this movement that really had its roots in West Oakland. What are some so, of the, the laws that they've rolled back with the civil rights uh, movement? Okay, voting rights, right? A lot of the uh, protections that were first developed by Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society programs, right? The grants and loans meant to improve the educational opportunities for black Americans and people of color who have been restricted for most of our history here in the United States. Those have gradually been rolled back and disappeared. Such as affirmative action? Would that have been one of them? Well, there's a series 
of affirmative action laws, right? Uh, you being an athlete, female athlete, were one of the biggest beneficiaries of the affirmative action laws. Remember, they weren't designed just for black people. The Civil Rights Act of 1972, Title IX provided equal access for women in the schools in the United States. The affirmative action laws, or when Richard Nixon said, the United States must act affirmatively to end discrimination. Those are a whole series of laws. Yeah, but a lot of those laws are the ones that I'm talking about. The housing laws, right? Because black people were not allowed access to certain neighborhoods. You know, I say black people and people of color weren't allowed access to certain loans. They were eliminated through redlining. They were redlined in poisonous areas of the city. And as a result, they have higher disease rates in some areas. My family was redlined into a poisonous area of Vallejo. It was very common. And so what the affirmative action laws did, it was to gradually deal with some of those laws before they started to be rolled back. What is redlining, Mr. Green? So what redlining is, is it's a restriction of uh, uh, housing availability to black people and people of color. If you look where you grew up in, that area was formerly redlined for black people. Oh, in Berkeley? The area that, yes, the area that you lived in, all the, way down, yeah, all the way down to Highway 880 along the industrial corridor. So if you follow that industrial corridor from Hayward all the way down to Richmond, and Vallejo, that industrial corridor is where black people were redlined into, largely because a lot of that area was poisonous because of industrial waste, right? You've been down to Martinez and Richmond, you've seen all those refineries. Who lived yeah. in those, all those areas? Black North and brown Richmond. people. Yeah, exactly. And they suffered or are suffering uh, continuing from certain results of that. Yeah, but we were redlined out of the, the quote, better areas. Above Martin Luther King, you did not see black people living in Berkeley. Below Martin Luther King, before gentrification, that's where all the black people lived. And that's where all of our stores were. Yeah, and so you saw that in all neighborhoods in the United States, black people were restricted from living in certain areas. They were restricted from getting certain loans, even though they were military. I'm from a family of military veterans. I probably have about 20. We were restricted from getting certain uh, GI benefits. And when we got them, we could not use them to live anywhere. They could only be used to live in red line districts. I grew up in one in Vallejo. So you touched on um, the current situation today regarding racism um, and white supremacy. Is there a way um, that we can combat racism? The best way to combat racism is from education at a very early age. History has to be taught accurately. 
And you've got to be able to view the origins of white supremacy. But before you do that, you have to look at how the status of race was created in the first place. Because if you try to, to start to combat racism without understanding its origin, it becomes overly emotional because it's tied directly to individuals. It's white people who are responsible. It's not white people. It's institutions that have been created and supported throughout centuries that grant privilege to people based on skin color. That's the culprit. And right now, nobody understands that. And so they personalize it. And once you personalize something, it becomes very intense. Look at social media, right? Once it's personalized, it's very difficult to deal with. If you look at it intellectually and you teach from a very early age and there's a different understanding of what happened, people can deal with it differently. Now racism is weaponized. But that's what Russia is using against us right now. And they are, have been very successful at using race as a weapon. They don't have to attack the United States with any weapons. What they've done is they've used race as a weapon and attacked us through social media. And correct me if I'm wrong, right now we're at each other's throats. We are. We're very divided. Right. right. And that's because it's, it's been weaponized. And the closer we come to the election, the more intense it's going to be, right? And the closer we come to the election, the more Russia is going to use it to attack us of an influence campaign. And it started in the, uh, during the Cold War, the use of race to create divisions in America, because that's our original sin. The original sin is the genocide in America, the genocide of the Native population. Yes. Followed very closely by the institution of slavery. Those are the original sins. Right? And Russia understands that, so they're using that original sin as a weapon. It's working. Do you, 100%. Do you think the Do you think the the German model can be used in America, other than education? The German as a way model to combat racism. Being, you You mean the way they decided to? Uh, look at Nazism after yes. uh, uh, Nazism after the Holocaust? Yes. I would say a combination of that could work. But there's so much resistance against even eliminating symbols of racism. Right? No that have only existed, yeah, That have only existed for 50 years, right? And it only existed for 50 years. There's so much reaction against that, right? You have warfare being raged over, over wearing a mask to stop a pandemic. The answer is the solution has to be much deeper than that. The Nazis got the idea from us. We didn't get the idea of developing this, this movement of eugenics from them, 
They got that idea from us. You know what I mean? What, through slavery? Well, through that whole system of our history, the idea of racial superiority, they got that idea from us. The Nazis used to hold, the Nazis used to sell out Madison Square Garden here in New York prior to World War II. We were the pattern for them. They weren't the pattern for us. They used to sell out the Madison Square Garden for what? For Nazi rallies. Here in the United States, just like you see the rise of the Nazi party, there's a huge Nazi presence here in the United States prior to World War II. There was a huge Klan presence. There was presence. There was almost a Klan president of the United States. Yet racism is really that deeply rooted. 1924, there was almost a Klan president of the United States. Yet racism is deeply rooted. That's why it has to be addressed you know, much greater than on a surface level. It's got to be a part of the the educational institution from a very early age. When people start to look at one another differently, you know, not as statuses, but as Americans. And what is your take on being called African-American versus being called Black? Really have no take on it. You know, the idea of, you know, pride and Blackness comes from a movement called the Black Nationalist Movement. Okay, to be called black used to be an epithet. Okay, what people like uh, Martin Delaney and Marcus Garvey would start to do is they would start to look at the identity of blackness as something positive. Because remember, according to the purity of blood laws, the creation of black as a status was negative. So what they started to say at the turn of the century is, no, black is positive. It's a good thing. In fact, black is beautiful. So that moniker stems from the uh, black nationalist movement. Black and African-American, yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's just a, uh, you know, it's really a name without a designated difference. I think African-American ties us to our ancestral homeland, even though the uh, slave trade and the institution of slavery attempted to erase that connection. I see. Thank you for your perspective on that. Crystal, my pleasure. All right, Mr. Green, I really appreciate um, you taking the time and educating us. Um, and giving us some some American history um, that we can further investigate and learn more about. This was just a taste of American history, and I hope all our listeners um, take some of the topics, take some of the information that you provided, and do their own research um, and learn more about certain sections that we've discussed. Yes. Can I say something in closing? Yes, please. In closing, I'd like to say this. America is a republic, right? According to Baron de Montesquieu, he writes a book called The Spirit of the Laws, which outlines 
all of the different systems of government that have existed throughout history. And he says that there's only three categories in which governments have existed. Okay, you've got a monarchy, and the power of the monarch is based on conferring titles of important people. You've got a despotic government or a dictatorship, and that's based on the power of fear that a leader can hold over his subjects. If we have a republic, and according to the Montesquieu, the republic is based on the civic virtue that citizens have for the republic. So the citizens of the republic, if they love the republic, they will make sacrifices for that republic. Pay taxes, obey laws, serve in the military, right? If they don't love the republic, they act against the best interests of the republic, and the republic will fail. So lesson being is if all Americans don't feel like citizens of America, America cannot and will not exist as a republic. Our enemies know that, and that's what they're attacking, right? The civic virtue or the civic love of the citizens. And racism does not allow all Americans equal access. Thus, they don't feel like they're part of the republic. I am sure, like me, you were able to learn so much from Coach Green's interview. I would just like to say this. Despite our ugly history and our current civil unrest, pause say the rest of us listeners, I still remain hopeful for the future. I am hopeful that we as a nation will take our black history seriously. Make it a normal part of our schooling. Teach the facts. Reveal our unsavory side. But show, moreover, all the black greatness that black people have brought built and done for America. Break down all the fear barriers that keep people of different race, color, gender, and religious backgrounds separate and unequal. Let us grow together. Move this nation forward. Leave behind the ugliness that separates us and keeps us in a constant state of hate and fear. Don't you think that all children deserve this future? Let me say it again. Don't you think all children deserve this future? To close, I want to thank you for taking this learning journey with me. I urge you to keep learning. Read a black history book. How about Cast, The Origins of Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson. I also urge you to watch 13th by Ava DuVernier as she reveals how the 13th Amendment created a legal system for punishing black people. Let's all keep learning and really seeing each other for the value of our character and not through a caste system built to prop up a corporate system of greed. Personally, I think we are all better than this, and I know we deserve better. Thanks, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners. Let's all keep learning more and more about one another. We hope our words have sparked at least one aha moment, and that you will help us to keep this powerful human rights movement going. We hope you opt to be an ally. Accept, learn, listen, and that you take action and demand social justice. And now, as I close out this episode, 
I want to remind you all to stand out, be a solid ally, and to purchase your Solid Lotion Bar Justice products. Remember, all proceeds are being donated to organizations fighting racial injustice. So visit www.solidlotionbar.com and order your Justice Lotion Bar today. And lastly, I'm pleading with you, Louisville, Kentucky's judicial system, arrest the criminals who murdered Breonna Taylor. Pod save the rest of us listeners. Thank you for tuning in and becoming a solid ally. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley, Karen Castro, and Robert Stanley. We want to thank our guest, whose open and honest responses shaped an informative and empathetic episode. As always, we need to thank our fantastic Pod Say the Rest of Us listeners. Your support means so much to us. Additionally, we need to thank the many people who have made it possible for us to stand out. This includes our great ally team, Crystal, Ed, Jill, Justice, Rodney, Tina, and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Also, a special thanks to Keith Ramey for his informative voiceover work. As always, we need to thank our musical genius team, Hunter Lewis, Danny Burns, Alejandro Amescua of Drill Beats, and Robert Stanley. We also need to thank Justice for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for her web design work and production support, St. Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsor and contributor, the Solid Lotion Bar Company. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website at podsavetherestofus.com, as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus, or on Twitter at savetherestofus. We'd like to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. As you know, this helps us grow and reach more listeners and gain more allies. And as always, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners, thank you for tuning in. Your kingdom lies in a past